Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Welcome back, Bar Fight listeners. Happy New Year, you guys. I've missed you. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season, a safe holiday season. I know everybody seems to be getting sick. Um, Stay safe, you guys, and take care of yourselves. I hope you had fun, ate a lot of food, drank a lot of wine, and took some time to rest. I took some time to just disconnect and to nurture my spirit, hang out with my family, not check my email, not check my texts. Um, So if you've reached out, I am now digging out and I'm just, I feel this sort of newness and aliveness around not just my work, but around this show. Sometimes disconnecting can, can reinvigorate our passion for what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I just feel thrilled to be back. We have so many great things coming up on bar fights in the next several months. We're here every Monday on every major platform. And again, I always remind you, our mission is to inform you, to teach you things you did not know before. And of course, to inspire you and have a lot of fun along the way. So first Monday back in 2022, I have a really cool guest for you guys today. His name is Hoyt Richards, and his story is so interesting, and there's a lot of parallels between his life and my life. He grew up right down the road from where I'm doing this podcast, like literally five minutes away. Um, He's a former Princeton football player. He was a fashion model who spent 15, probably more years, um, modeling for Ford, Wilhelmina agencies, which if you guys don't know, are like the biggest, fanciest agencies out there. He's been over 300 commercials, 40 films. So basically he's a super stud Princeton football player, super stud, good looking fashion model, but he was also a member of a cult starting at what I think he said was just 16 years old. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today and get the details around how this handsome Ivy league stud was also found himself in the confines of a cult for a very, very long time. And we were just chatting before the show and it's always striking to me that one of the top questions I get asked is how could you be 25 years old, you know, sexually active, a first year law student, an Ivy League graduate, and still going back to Larry Nassar's office for what I thought still was medical treatment. And so 
we're going to talk to Hoyt today about how could you be so smart and so successful and be probably traveling to all these major cities and have real wherewithal in the world, but still finding himself in the cult. And I have a sneaking suspicion. Part of that is being groomed at such a young age, but we'll, we'll hear it straight from the Hoyt, the the horse's mouth, uh, not the Hoyt's mouth, the horse's mouth, but um, Hoyt also has this podcast and I got a puppy about six weeks ago. I mean, six months ago, and she's freaking frisky as hell. And this little tiny dog needs to walk like up to five miles a day. So I've been finding myself with all of this new time to listen to everything out there. And so I've become a real fan of Hoyt and his podcast. And we want to hear all about that today. The premise of the podcast being bringing on former members of cults and, and really sort of busting through that stigma and giving them a safe place to talk about how indoctrination works and demonstrating that this really can happen to anyone. The way I want to talk about sexual abuse and sexual trauma on this show, it really can happen to anyone. And it really is happening to people that you don't even expect. So we know worldwide there are over 10,000 active cults, which I had no idea about until I listened to Hoyt's podcast. And so let's start there. No one ever said, hey, I have this really cool idea. I'm going to join a cult. Um, and that's going to be how my life plays out. Just like nobody ever wakes up and says, hey, I have a great idea. I'm going to be you know, sexually traumatized in some way, shape, or form. So we're going to welcome Hoyt, super stud, to the show, and we're going to talk about your story. Hoyt, welcome to Bar Fights. Thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, Sarah, it's great to be here, and um, I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing as well. You, know, you gave me quite a little build up there, but um, from afar, I'm, I'm cheering you on from the bleachers. Ah, thank you. Thank you. And until we meet five minutes down the road at our local water. Exactly. Amazing. So Hoyt, for my listeners that are just meeting you for the first time, can you walk us through your story and just kind of give us an overview of, of how you found yourself in a cult? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the point you just referenced about the fact that this can happen to anyone is, you know, the truth. But of course, it's not the general consensus as far as per perception. So <clears throat> I think when it starts happening, the last thing you're thinking is this is what I'm getting involved with. And so for me, um, it began literally with a guy uh, putting his towel down next to mine on the beach on the, uh, up in Nantucket where my family goes up in summers every year. And, um, and I'd heard from some friends that there was this guy who was a little bit older, you know, he's, he's probably in his mid thirties at that point. And he was kind of, they said like a flashback from the sixties, he was into all sorts of kind of, you know, new agey type things. And so I'd heard a little bit about this person, but when he sat down next to me and started to engage me in conversation, I just remember thinking, oh, this must be that guy that they had talked about. So on some level, my friends had already vetted him in sense, you know, and so I didn't feel any um, 
particular danger at all. Um, and he was incredibly friendly and, and as a lot of these people are very charismatic. And, uh, and he really talked to me as if I was an adult, which was really nice to kind of, you know, feel that. And he was talking about subjects that I wouldn't talk to my other 16 year old, you know, friends about, you know, it was, um, kind of uh, Eastern philosophy and ancient civilizations and astrology and UFOs and, you know, all these sort of things that I had interest in, but wouldn't necessarily admit that to too many. And it was just this opportunity to kind of have this grown up conversation on the beach, uh, not thinking too much about it. And, um, and then the island in Nantucket is so small that I would literally bump into him around town. And he invited me to a couple of these, um, he was very social, so he'd have these parties at his place, and there'd be people there all the way from 16 to 80, and, and some of the New York scene was, you know, people were there, and it was just an entree into a different world that I knew, and I didn't know at that age, and um, and he was all into this, the astrology thing, and he'd kind of give, like, people a quick horoscope reading for them, it was kind of like a magic trick type of thing, and um and it was really a, a, a relationship that built very um, slowly because I would only see him in the summers. And it wasn't really until um, he found out that I was uh, going to be attending Princeton uh, that, you know, at that point I was 18, 19. And that's when he said the summer before, oh, you should come up to New York. That's where I live. And I, I go to Studio 54 and you can, you know, I, I go there with a lot of friends and you have a great time and meet some fun people. So that's literally how it started. Um, you know, before, you know, I would say initially I just thought of him as this kind of semi-eccentric guy I knew from the island in Nantucket. But then eventually um, I had this opportunity to go to New York and I could bring a couple of friends and we would crash in his apartment. And then we go to Studio 54 and I thought, I actually thought I was kind of working him. You know, yeah, and and because uh, because I wouldn't consider us, you know, really good friends in any way. But the fact that there's an opportunity to go to New York, go to Studio Fifty Four, I'm like, well, why not? And uh, obviously, I had some great experiences at Studio Fifty Four, and uh, those are the ones we're going to talk about when we <laughs> when we meet up. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, it's a. I, I remember being greeted the first time by a girl wearing nothing but Scotch tape, and I was like. Oh my God. And yeah, it was like a scotch cape, you know, bikini. I was like, I have a completely see-through. And I was like, I, I don't want to leave this. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so so we've got this charismatic guy yeah. in, in a very affluent part of the country, right? right. Yeah. With a very promising young man about to go off to Princeton, right? And, and yeah. so the, these facts don't necessarily ring an alarm bell in no, your head, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the real, you know, I didn't really recognize that he even had like an entourage around him until I went to New York. That's when I started to see he had this kind of, you know, small following, so to speak. And I try to explain to people when I tell my story that, um, you know, cults come in many shapes and sizes and forms, you know, they, they take on the personality of the leader. So you, you, you can't qualify them just in a standard sense, but you will see the techniques being used almost, you know, all of them do the same thing. It's almost like, it's almost like someone read the cult, you know, leader's handbook. And, uh, but what was interesting with this for me is like the way I try to explain it to people, there needs to be a perfect storm of sorts for it to really kind of to hook you in, so to speak. You, you kind of have to be 
interested in what they're selling to even be receptive. And, um, yeah. you know, and because this was kind of a slow burner for me and he would introduce me to certain Eastern philosophy and things that were great that I just took it as a very casual relationship of someone that would, would, would offer things that I wouldn't get from other, you know, friendships. And then when, um, the, the catalyst that really kind of put some hooks in me was I, I got hurt playing football and um, I was having problems with my shoulders and they were partially dislocating and uh, I was having trouble tackling. I played free safety and that's when um, I kind of went through this life crisis of realizing that I, I probably wasn't going to be able to uh, continue playing anymore. And this was right before my junior year. And, um, and as I kind of went through that kind of, crises of, you know, cause that was, you know, if, if I had met you at that time, I would have said I'm a football player from Princeton, you know? And so my whole identity was tied to that sport. Yeah. And, uh, and when I, the, the, the thought of, of losing it and all my friends were football players. So it's kind of the, you know, my whole community, um, that is where, you know, his name was, a his actually, essentially think about the call leader, his name's Fred, Freddie, uh, Freddie Myers, but he, when I met him, he went by Frederick von Mears. Oh, so gosh. he was this kind of Brooklyn Jewish kid who just tried to erase his own history and create this new one, which is more waspy kind of Dutch descent. And he fabricated a whole new personality. And, um, he, he had claimed to me that he was orphaned when he was age four. And that turned out to be a lie. I only found that out, you know, you know, years after he died. And then um, he also um, claimed, you know, he had three sisters or two or three sisters who also all had criminal records. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and he just, and his mother's still even alive even today. So, so it's interesting, you know, that people's just create a different kind of personality. And so basically when I, when I went through this life crisis of what am I going to do with my shoulders he said, oh, you should come to New York. You know, I know the the, uh, the the head of the men's division at Ford Models. You should, you know, I should introduce you. And you could, you could model, you could act. And he was really the conduit for me to enter into the industry. And uh, and it kind of, you know, at that, at that age, when I was going like, well, who am I? Who am I? I'm like, well, if I can't be a football star, maybe I'll just try to be a star. And that was literally about all the, all the foresight I had at age 20, 21, whatever it was at that time. And so... Through that doorway being opened, I started to make trips up from because Princeton's about maybe an hour or 15 minutes from New York. So I would take the train up there and I'd go up there for go sees or you know commercial auditions and that sort of thing. And I started to put my footing into that business. And again, it wasn't like I thought about it as a career at that point. I thought it'd just be something fun to do before I figure out what I'll do as a career. Yeah. Um, and um, then I just you know, literally happened to be at the right place at the right time and some, some things fell into place and, and the career kind of took off to the point that when I graduated college, um, I had all this work in front of me because, you know, what happened as my, as, as I started to get my footing in that business, people were constantly calling me from New York saying, oh, we've got a job for you in Paris. We've got a job for you in Milan. And I'm like, listen, I got a test on Tuesday. I can't be in Milan, you know, but it created this whole type of uh um, interest in, in me and being unavailable that actually probably worked in my favor. So the time I graduated, I had this workload right in front of me and my career just kind of took off from there. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that, that people find interesting about my stories. I, I had um, quite a successful 
career as, as a male model. And uh, the whole time I was in this group and no one, no one really knew. I mean, my parents knew and you know, ultimately my involvement with the group lasted. Um, if you want to think of, of, you know, I met Freddie at 16 and then I escaped the group when I was 37. So it was basically 20 years of my life. Wow. And out of that, um, you know, I would live with them for 15 years and the 15 years I was living with them, uh, the group um, was when, um, uh, you know, I didn't see my parents for 12 of those years. So it was definitely a separation from the family. And, you know, they're, they're always trying to kind of create this new, what they call the cult personality is what you say clinically, the way you call it and, um, and get you to dismiss and try to, you know, look at your past life as being the problem. And I mean, there was literally talk to me in the terms of um, your past is, is was where the brainwashing took place. And now you're finding out the truth and you have to erase all this pre-program you've had of this life you've had before you met us. Now you're finally getting the truth. And that was, you know, the mentality I had, I had to kind of just separate from this, you know, this past of mine and create this whole new identity thinking that I was creating the better me, but not realizing I was just being indoctrinated into a cult. Yeah. And for somebody who was most likely motivated and bright and had goals, right? You weren't some couch potato sitting there and somebody <laughs> knocked on your front door and said, would you like to join a cult, right? You right. had a curious mind and wanted to be better and do better. And, and we're probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but looking for ways to do that. So people who can find themselves in these situations are often bright, motivated, curious, successful people. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, and those are the people you target in the group. You know, I mean, you're, you're trying to get people that, you know, fulfill kind of leadership positions. And they're also going to be the best recruiters because, you, you know, you want to have a, a winning brand, so to speak. So, yeah. um, so that's, and, and, you know, the whole thing about um, kind of the package I came in with, you know, it, it's, you know, people would say, well, God, you had so much going for you. Why would you ever get involved with something like this? And, and you know, I almost think in a way, um, the brighter you are, the easier it is to be indoctrinated. Because I think if, if you've on some level felt like you've been dealt a winning hand and you're not really sure why, but, you know, certain things come easier to you than it does for others. And, and in my case, you know, I, I, I did well at school. I, I made friends easily. I excelled at athletics. And all those things were great, but I didn't really have a passion. I didn't really have a purpose. Yeah. And that was a, a real source of insecurity for me. So when I met this guy, Freddie, on the beach, who's you know, all into this you know, whole approach to life and that sort of thing, um, yeah, you know, he had a plan. And it, it sounded a lot better than my no plan. And you know, I think at that point, that's part of the perfect storm. You have to be kind of receptive to what they're selling to say, well, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather join someone who's enthusiastic about their plan than just keep moving in limbo with my no plan. And that's how it starts. And it's very much a bait and switch in the sense that all the ideas and the philosophies that I signed up for when I got the pitch, so to speak, of what it was all about, I'll never beat myself up for those because those, you know, it was basically how can you can you how can you become less selfish, more enlightened, you know, become a better version of yourself so you can help your fellow man and help the planet on some level. Yeah. And 
you know, those are, you know, noble, noble, um, you know, goals and things that I would have never really thought at my young age, you know, that I'd have an opportunity to do something like that. So it gets definitely skewed in that way of, of, you know, what you sign up for and then what you were actually involved with are vastly different things. And it took me 20 years to figure that out. Yeah. But, but luckily I did. And sometimes people don't. Um, that's, I think, been the most probably upsetting part of my journey is recognizing, excuse me, that even though I was fortunate to get away and figure some things out and uh, made the choice to talk about it, which was, has been a huge part of my healing process, so many of the people that I was involved with the group, and our group is never very large. It's less less than 100 people, I'd say, and uh, you know, but call it 100. And I would say probably five people out of that 100 can admit it was a cult, knows what that word really means, and can talk about it. So you're saying that 95% of the people involved are still in some form of trauma, unhealed, either not dealing with it, you know, or in some form of denial uh, or avoidance. And, um, and that to me is the, the true tragedy of these stories. Yeah. So when you're in the cult, you probably never think I'm actually in a cult, right? No. You're thinking, <laughs> I'm in a movement. I'm in right. a group. Yeah. I have these friends. How looking back, did you gain the wherewithal to get that perspective that this is a cult while you were still in it. Cause that's gotta be a really, really hard thing to do. Yeah, I know you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and we identified cults all around us. Like you now we looked at uh, like the Moonies and we looked at Scientology. We, you know, we were like, oh, oh, these are cults. These are terrible. What's happening to these people? It's all being manipulated. They're being taken advantage of. And you never think that's happening to you, you know? And, and, um, and, and for me, I never, awakened to the fact that it was a cult while I was involved when I finally escaped. Um, and this is the question I, you know, most often get you know asked is, is what was the break point? Like, and I wish I could tell you that I woke up one morning and said, Oh my God, you know what? This is, this might be a cult. I think this is dangerous. I should probably get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing remotely like that. I mean, for me, it was, um, basically the leader had died. A new leader had, had supplanted him. And um, we had moved from being a very kind of aggressive organization, trying to recruit a lot of people, you know, which, you know, all went up in flames when the leader died and this 15 page Vanity Fair article came out calling us a cult. And so then we went kind of underground. We went into the mountains of uh, Western North Carolina and we had, you know, uh, you know, four years of, of, of uh, stored, you know, food and we had gold bullion and we had bunkers and guns and waiting for the apocalypse because you know we were one of these uh uh kind of doomsday cults of thinking you know the end is around the corner and uh and while that was going on uh one of the the kind of i guess prophecies the original leader had said was that um, that the shit was really going to hit the hand, fan around you know, the turning of the century so it was now getting to be the late 90s and i was still modeling and traveling around the world and you know, I'm sitting in London or, you know, Paris or Barcelona and I'm going, you know, I don't think this is going to collapse like this guy forecast. Like he said, you know, there's going to be all these natural calamities, hurricane, hurricanes, you know, uh, you know, tidal waves, earthquakes, all that sort of stuff. And that was not happening. And that he said, you know, government's going to collapse, you know, all these sort of things. And I'm like, well, nothing, none of that seems to be happening. So, so at that point, my critical thinking starting to kind of kick back in and I'm and I'm comfortable enough to at least say 
if nothing else, the timeline's wrong. You know, like these things could happen, but I don't, they're definitely not happening on the timeline that he said. And when I voiced that within the group, it rattled a lot of cages and I was basically painted as a heretic or a blasphemer of sorts. Oh, gosh. And, uh, and that's when the kind of re-indoctrination process started, you know, in, in essence, to try to save me from myself. And um, so I was basically quarantined, which you know, is a word we're very familiar with these days, but quarantined to uh, our, our lake house um, kind of compound we had down in the, in the, in the mountains of uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And I had to be the first one up and the last one to bed and do every type of slave-like labor, anything that no one else really wanted to do, I had to do. And all under the thrust that this would teach me, me humility and gratitude that I was so uh, lucky to have this opportunity. And I was just getting too lost in what we, what we used to call the Maya, which is a Hindu word for the material world. And, and the fact that I had been in you know, a model, all of a sudden I had just gotten lost in it. And that's not really real. That's an illusion. And all these things were going through it. And meanwhile, that illusion that they referred to was the way that the group was financed. I basically, you know, paid for everything for the group for 15 years wow. in my career. And, um, but, but I was, you know, really at this critical point of breaking of where I'm just like, um, I just, I don't know what to think anymore. And because of those doubts, I was, you know, given these chores every day and supposed to sail through them with this smile on my face and this, you know, attitude of gratitude. And I didn't have that because, um, you know, I wasn't feeling that way. I looked in the mirror, you know, they, they were also shaving my head so I couldn't model. So, um, so I, yeah, I had no exit route cause I could, there's nothing I could really do. I, uh, you know, I, I could had no driving privileges. Um, so I was really kind of locked down and, you know, I would looked in the, in the mirror and I looked like a, a convict and I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I had hair and I wasn't here, I'd probably be, I could be in like Milan right now doing an ad with Claudia Schiffer and Naomi Campbell, probably kissing her and getting paid $25,000 right now. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd rather be there than scrubbing the toilet right now. I guess I'm not spiritual. I guess I really am as full of shit as they've been telling me for the last 20 years. And so I went through this whole kind of um, mental, you know, crisis. And um, because I wasn't having the good spiritual attitude that they wanted, I was facing this firing squad, this verbal firing squad every night. And I'm not exaggerating. Every night for about probably eight to nine weeks, I would face whoever was around. It would usually be at that point, 10 or 15 people. And that I would get verbally assaulted on, on how I had just been misbehaving and had this shitty attitude and I was resentful and resistant and full of shit. And, and they would just come at me for sometimes two hours. Sometimes it'd go 10, 12 hours. And I would literally just go catatonic. But the, so my break point was realizing that from that perspective, I thought they're never going to give up because they actually believe that I'm going to somehow pull out of this. It's apparent to me that I am broken. I am un, unfixable and I am a loser and a, and a lost cause. So the, the least I could do is relieve them of my dead weight so that they could spend that time, that two hours, 10 hours, it could be every night doing something a lot more constructive than dealing with the lost cause like me. Mm-hmm. And that was my approach of saying, you know, the least I could do is, uh, is, is leap. And, um, and I thought when my hair grows back, I'll keep sending the money and, you know, I'll, 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 work, I'll just, you know, maybe eventually down the road if, if I, by some miracle, I can come back. But 
I just felt like that's how, and I, and I attempted twice. They caught me twice, but a third time I finally got away. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, and then I put as much landmass between me and then I, that's what, that's what took me to LA. Yeah. So you left, I find that so interesting. You left not because you had this ding, 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 aha moment. These people, That's right. this is crazy. You left out of a true belief that you were not good enough, yeah. you know, shame um, and thinking I'm going to spare them the, the awful human being that I am. And so I'm going to go in peace, but I'm still going to do my part for them. And I find that so interesting. You know, I stopped seeing Larry Nassar at 25, not because I had any aha moments, but because my parents simply moved out of town and I never had a reason to be back in Lansing before, you know, it's just, that's the degree of mind fucking and trauma that that, you know, occurs in these scenarios. And so when people listening to this are feeling that kind of shame or that kind of, you know, confusion, our message is listen, like that's part of what they do. And that's part of why we stayed for so long because they're really good at what they do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, I would, the way I looked at it and, and because it wasn't easy to leave, even getting to that point, because I, I was okay with, with in essence, screwing up my own life, but the way it had been painted that we were, you know, creating this incredible work that was going to help the planet on a global scale. We were going to become these like leaders of the new age. I can laugh about it now, but we, what we thought, you know, and, and so not only would I be, obviously karmically responsible for my own life. But if I made this choice to leave, you know, that would, that would send me spinning down the karmic wheel to all sorts of hell and, and damnation, but I'd also be karmically responsible for the millions of people I was supposed to help mm. because I failed in my attempt to become this leader, which, which I had earned over these lifetimes leading up to now. And that was the whole, that was another part of the story. Like you, you've earned this opportunity in this lifetime that if you do the work and follow the training, you won't even have to incarnate back on earth again. And all these, you know, so, so that was the part that was a harder obstacle. I just didn't want to be the guy that left every, all these people down. And that kept yeah. me hanging in there and taking the abuse. Obviously at the time, I didn't recognize it as abuse. Yeah. You know, it's one of these things that I try to explain to people that at first you get the love bombing, you know, they tell you how great you are and what potential you have and all the things that I don't care how loving and wonderful your parents are. You can never get enough of that. And so they're telling you all these great things you want to hear. And, um, and, you know, no one teaches you that that feeling good too fast can be a really dangerous thing and and, and a potential red flag. And that's something that I really try to um, push onto my nieces and nephews who are younger. Like if someone's kind of, kind of blowing a lot of smoke up here, but, you know, and it, and it really sounds, you know, too good to be true. Just be careful. Like, cause even we get, that's how we get involved with a lot of toxic love relationships. You know, someone yeah. just knocks us off our feet and compliments and all these sort of things. And it all is so seductive, but we don't realize that that's ultimately a manipulation technique. And, um, you know, so this is one of these things that, you know, when I got out of this thing, I went into PTSD. I, I know I was I was convinced that I was evil. I was convinced I've been the, the, the source of, of all my problems. I total failure. And um, they say that when you've been in a highly abusive environment, that it takes at least 12 months and more likely 24 months 
before you can consider the idea that maybe it's not just you, maybe the environment you're in has something to do with how shitty you feel about yourself. And that was, and luckily um, I met up with a guy who had left our group um, like four years before I had, and he was also living in LA. And it was so great to see him because it's always easier to see someone else's situation than your own. And I could see how much he was struggling four years away from this group. And I was like, man, there's something wrong here. So he was kind of in a crazy living situation. I was in a crazy living situation and we decided to room together. And we spent the first six months rooming together, just deconstructing a lot of our experiences in the group. Like, what's, what? remember when this happened? What do you think that was about? Like, what, what, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? And, uh, and through that process, you know, I basically came to the awakening, like, well, for years, people are saying it's a cult. Like, it's not a cult, right? And he's like, no, of course, that can't be a cult. We've never joined a cult. I'm like, do you know anything about cult? He's like, no. And I'm like, well, neither do, I, neither do I. I said, but I know it wasn't a cult. So let me at least do some research and maybe I'll find out what it was, you know, but let me first look into cults so I can cross it off the list, you know, because yeah. I figured that would be the a good first step. So I went on the internet and I found the best selling book on cults uh, was this book called Combating Cult Mind Control by this guy, um, uh, Stephen Hassan. And Stephen's now become a dear, dear friend of mine. But I remember my first reaction was because he, he had been in the Moonies, you know, and that's how, and he got pulled in. And, uh, and I'm like, well, the Moonies, God, they were the, you know, they were the shaved heads in orange robes in airports giving out flowers. I'm like, who would ever get involved with something like that? Like I immediately wanted to dismiss him because of his own experience, right. That I, that I really didn't know anything about, but just, you know, uh, again, I was like in that same mentality that most people are like, how could you get involved with something like that? You know? And, and, but I, you know, they had so many great reviews. I'm like, well, let me just read it and see if it, you know, gives me some insights. And literally the first 60 pages was how he had been indoctrinated. And that's where the shoe dropped. I was like, you could just change the names. I had gone through the same experience. And that was this aha moment of realizing I had been in a cult. And not only had I not, you know, I wasn't in in any really special cult either. Like I was in a textbook cult that everything in the book is like, check, 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 check. So I wasn't even in a special cult. It was just textbook cult textbook cult member. And, um, and as hard of the pill that was to swallow, that's when the recovery process began. And, and that's been the thing that I've realized with a lot of the people that I've tried to reach out to who are ex-members. Once I started to figure things out, they didn't want to swallow that pill, mm. you know, because you, you, you have to go back. And then, like in my case, I had to go back to 16 years old to that moment on the towel and realize at that moment, I was on some level, being worked, being groomed, whatever way you want to frame it, but I was being worked and conned. And I had to start looking at my whole life moving forward with that ingredient now in my lens and look at my life in that way. And, and which is really hard to do. And really that, hard. And you can understand why people avoid it like the plague. Mm-hmm. But if you avoid it like the plague, and, and you know this area yourself, like trauma does not go away. It's like having a car accident. You're not going to ever forget you had the car accident, you know? So, but if you choose to deal with it and you kind of make peace with it and you start to understand the dynamics at play. And for me, one of the huge parts of doing the self-education and recognizing all these manipulation techniques and how, how mind control works and all these sort of things that 
basically my control works on everybody. You just have to be receptive. So, you know, this is where I say like, it truly can happen to anyone. It just, it's just whether the circumstances fall in place for the opportunity for it to happen. Um, but as far as anyone thinking they're excluded because of their background or their intelligence, that stuff doesn't play into it at all. It's really whether you're at some, it's as simple as if you've, if you've moved into a point of your life where you're kind of seeking answers to some of the bigger questions, like, why am I here? What's my life about? What's my purpose? What, you know, what are any of us here for? And you find someone who, from your point of view, is providing answers. You, know, you embrace that as like, oh, how awesome. But you don't ever really consider that maybe, you know, you know there's something fishy going on. And, and the way it was explained to me, I, I went to this place in Ohio, which was kind of like a cult rehab place. Um, mm-hmm. It was called Wellspring. It doesn't exist anymore, which is a tragedy because they did such great work there. But they basically said it's like a cycle in the sense that if I'm if I'm seeking you know uh, asking questions and this other person's providing answers, that's like a cyclical you know uh, 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 metric. But in a normal relationship, if I said something to you right now, Sarah, and, and you said, "Wow, that's amazing! I never thought of it like that. That's really," and I, you had some sort of mini epiphany. I'd be like, oh, Sarah, I read it in this book. You should check it out. Or I took this class at school and, and that's where it taught me. Or I saw it on YouTube. I'd basically almost unconsciously let you know this information is available to everybody. And that's what helped me. And you should check it out yourself. But if it's a if it's a controlling relationship, the person will say, well, you know, I'm so glad you, you get that, Sarah. And if you have any more questions, I'm here to, I want to help you and, and just mm-hmm. consider me a resource. And now you've developed this thing of like, okay, I have you know, questions and answers on seeking, you're providing them, but a, a debt starts occurring of like, well, what am I giving you? Because you've said, you basically said you're here to help me. And, you know, and I've got the student teacher thing happening now. And, and you, and, and this is why you see these like women get in these, you know, battered, you know, wife battering, you know, scenarios or, or, you know, and they're, and they're like, well, you don't understand, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, he, he's basically saved my life. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, yep. And you're like, yeah, but he's, he's hitting you. No, 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 that's all my fault. He, he loves me so much. He basically saved me. And, and, and how could you pay someone back when you think they saved your life? And that's very similar to the cult thing. You, you think this person has picked you because of, you know, and it's, 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 listen, it's part of an ego stroking too, that because you're special, because you're unique, you're going to get the shortcut. I did all the work, you know, the cult leader, this is the cult leader speaking. I've done all this work to figure out this whole system, but because you're special, you just have to follow the system and you'll be fine. And you, and you don't realize that in essence, you're being sold a shortcut. And obviously they're never phrasing it like that, but ultimately looking back on it, I can see that that is the seduction technique of saying that because you're special, you get to kind of jump above the crowd and go to the front of the line uh, because I sent your, your, you know, your sensitivity, your, your, um, you know, you're, you're kind of superior in some way. You don't have to do what everyone else does. Yeah, and that relates right back to that grooming, right? Yeah, you're being, yeah. You're being you're being groomed. I think you just put that the best I've ever heard it put because I'm sitting here thinking of even 
in things like Bikram yoga or, you know, just movements that we all are involved in book clubs or, you know, with a leader or sports team or whatever, where that coach is giving you that, you know, extra attention. And there's this dynamic of they're going to get you to the Olympics and you're the one. It's so, these are such universal themes and the way you just put it helped me understand so much how any single one of us can find ourselves in these scenarios whether it be a cult but whether it be you know a yoga program where you know or uh you know just indoctrination in general yeah listen i'll do you one better you know i I would you know basically say the way this whole covid thing has been handled in a very cultic manner you know you know if, if you if you look at the way it's it's been largely a fear indoctrination and I'm not political. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've learned in life that black and white thinking is one of the most um, dangerous things you can fall into. And so I live in the, I live in the shades of gray, but you know, I think a lot of us have experienced and even lost relationships because people get very polarized in this. You've got, I put it one polar side, people think it's a total hoax. And at the other side, everyone thinks everybody's going to die, you know? So but once someone kind of gets in one of those two polar areas, you know, and they get so kind of hyped on it, and, and this is where the critical thinking's kind of left the building. Um, if you just try to have a friendly conversation with them, to, just to pass on some information that might pull them somewhere into the middle, you get attacked as being the other extreme, because in their mind, there's only A or B, you know, and that's the problem. When you fall into this kind of binary, all or nothing mentality, that's very cultic, and you don't get there on your own. You get there because on some level you've been indoctrinated into believing these things. So this is where people are getting information wherever they get it on the internet or whatever, through politicians, the media, they're getting skewed, you know, one of those two narratives. And that's a really dangerous thing. So for people who think it can't happen to them, you're probably having some form of it happen to you right now with just the way this period of life that we're into right now. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite conversations we've had on Bar Life. <laughs> You're just, you are spot on. Right. Um, give me just. And, and, and for questions. me, you know, what I feel like in meeting these people is like, oh my God, I'm meeting versions of myself when I was in the cult. Like I, it, I cringe to think what I put my friends and family through. It breaks. So I, I don't judge these people because I know I've been there, but I recognize it. Like the first time, like when during the two weeks to flatten the curve, I remember I walked out my apartment, I'm walking down the street and some dude's like a block and a half away from me, sees I'm a human, like freezes up and runs the other side of the street. And I'm like, geez, this is not the zombie apocalypse. But that reaction is what you're, that, that is a cultic mindset, you know? Wow. So you come out of this experience, you have all these sort of aha moments. How have you since then become the man you are today in, in terms of your healing process, your ability to talk about this, your ability to, to walk others through yeah. the process? How, are, how have you become who you are today? Oh, well, it, it's been a journey for sure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 I was kind of, um, you know, directed in, in my recovery process. They said, anything that you can do that's creative will help rebuild your self-esteem because mm-hmm. anything, so you can think of it like writing, painting, performing, um, you know, uh, you know, what, whatever you do that you feel like you've got a certain 
lens and perspective that you can put into your artwork or your, your form of art. And you start to recognize that you, if you, you're creating something that you like and others seem to appreciate, that part of your you know, biography that gives you the, the point of view you have right now is this terrible period you went through. So that also, that mm-hmm. in essence, becomes the gasoline for your creative energy, you know, engine on some level. And so you start to realize that these experiences you've had, good and bad, are the things that fuel your perspective. And that really helped a lot because I could start to dive into certain creative things. And then the other part of it has just been talking about it. And, and when I was first mm-hmm. coming out of this, um, it was kind of when Google was, was exploding. And because this Vanity Fair article had come out <clears throat> and there had been a lot of negative press about this group I was involved with, I was kind of between a rock and a hard place in the sense that, like, say I was at a party and I met some girl that I thought was really cute. And I said, you know, let's go meet up for a coffee. And then she went home and Googled my name. And all of a sudden she doesn't want to meet with me because it's all, you know, like, or, or just feels weird because there's all this weird stuff on the internet. I was like, man, I've got to find a way to deal with this because this is not going away. Yeah. So I said, the only way is to start creating a different narrative than what's on the internet right now. Yeah. And I said, so let me start talking about it and tell people, my side of my experience. And that, you know, that has led me down this path of where I've gotten very active in the kind of cult survivor network. And, um, and, and, and I also try to explain to people that when you think about the word cult, it's a very triggering word. And uh, we immediately think of Jonestown and Charlie Manson and all these things. And yes, of course, those are cults, but not every cult is like that. And I, I think it's most helpful to look at it as a spectrum, just like you would look at autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have on one extreme, sure, Jonestown, you know, where 900 people literally drink the Kool-Aid and die. Um, whether, you know, and then on the other side, I, you know, so definitely my time in eternal values was skewing towards that direction, not that extreme, but definitely skewing that direction. Mm-hmm. The other, par- the other you know, uh, side, I would put the one-on-one cultic relationship. And when I say cultic relationship, that's really the better way to frame this thing. Like if, if I found nowadays, I'm better off saying I had a 20 year relate, 20 year cultic relationship with a group and people are like, what, what do you, wait, what's a cultic relationship? Cause if I say I was in a cult for 20 years, people are like, Oh my God, are you sacrificing babies and killing goats? Like, you know, yeah. you know, so it's a, it's a, I have a big hole to kind of dig out of when I use that word cult on its own. But if I say cultic relationship, and the way they clinically de- define a cultic relationship, it's usually talking about a one-on-one relationship where the person that, in essence, you're seeking the love and approval from is in some way controlling and abusing you. Because, you know, in essence, you've created a power dynamic, either, either because of, you know, you're involved with them emotionally or, or even, you know, romantically. But it, so it can be a coach, it can be a parent, it can be a, a lover, it can be a friend, you know, it can... It can be a boss, you know, where that where you, you know, you're working so hard to make this person happy. And it seems like no matter what you do, it's never enough. No, how much, how no, whatever effort you do, you're always falling short and you're just always being diminished by this person. And yet you still want to please them. Yeah. And that is the cultic dynamic. So yep. if you want to, if you want to add in the peer pressure element, like I had, because there's a group dynamic. Then it, of course, gets a little more intense. And then, of course, the stakes get higher. It's not maybe just one person you're trying to make happy. Like in our group, the fate of the world lies in balance. Like if we don't get our shit together, we're all going to die. And so it's but it's a spectrum. And so I tell people 
you know, when they hear my story, sometimes it takes a more extreme version of a story to recognize a more subtle version in your own life. And so I really try to frame it to people and say, yes, it's important for me to own my story, talk about my story, but ultimately this is a universal condition that we're all experiencing. And I just want to make it more cool and accessible to talk <laughs> about your cultic experience because we've all had them. And, and if you don't identify, it's like that, that one-on-one relationship, which is the most common form of it, if it doesn't get identified, in essence, what happens is you everyone usually finds a way out of a bad relationship. But if you don't diagnose what it is, you can't really get the medicine. You start to cycle of repeating that kind of unhealthy relationship and not understanding why. So I'm just hoping to kind of get everybody on the same page, using the same nomenclature and recognizing that these are, this is kind of a, unfortunately, a, a common experience in, in the human um, relationship um, uh, you know, spectrum that we're in and that, that, that we're all kind of in there. And, we, and the more we learn about it, the more we're able to identify it and then get the proper healing you need so you don't keep repeating it. Okay. First of all, let me say you are very cool. (laughs) Second of all, I'm sitting here going, well, this describes every narcissistic relationship I've ever been in, right? Like dating, dating a narcissist, this describes a narcissistic, a relationship with a narcissistic parent. You're trying, you're trying, you're trying all you want is that approval, that love. And then I'm thinking of my gymnastics coach. And I've said in interviews before what we went through, I equate it to being like a cult. But now you're validating to me, it was a cultic relationship. I was in some way, shape or form a cult in my gym. So I'm just having every, you know, red, red aha moment over here. And now I need to schedule like 17 therapy appointments um, <laughs> to unpack all of this. But you are a wow guest. And I am so grateful that you gave us this time and taught us all of this. And I'm sure as more projects unfold um, for you, we would love to have you back and, and really stay in touch and keep our finger on the pulse of what you are up to. Can you tell our listeners about your podcast? Because I'm freaking loving it on my late <laughs> dog walks. So how can people find you? Okay. So we're on almost all the streaming um, platforms. It's called the, uh, what, what the flock, you know? So, uh, it's W-H-A-T-H-E-F-L-O-K. So what the flock? And um, I do this with a wonderful, uh, another cult survivor, Shel Rowland and I, and she was in a, um, a Christian cult called the uh, International Church of Christ. And, um, and we had met actually through the friend I had referenced earlier, Dr. Uh, Dr. Stephen Hassan, who's really kind of the cult expert in the country. And uh, it's really having conversations like we're having talking, you know, trying to create the normalcy of these conversations and, and put a real face and personality behind the people that identify as cult survivors, because I think, you know, as long as people perpetuate this idea that it can't happen to them, that's when you're most vulnerable because I'll, I can, you know, I can tell you uh, when anyone people, and when I was in the group and anyone would approach me and say, I don't know, it's, Sounds a little culty what you're talking about. I'm like, what you you think I'd get involved with a cult? Like, fuck you! I, I get really angry, but, <laughs> but I didn't know anything about cults, you know. And I think as long as people are in that position of ignorance, and I was one of them, um, and so I don't fault anyone being in that position. But I'm just telling you, that's when you're most vulnerable. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping by putting kind of a face and personality to these people that you know have the courage to come forward, 
people, like I said, in hearing the more extreme version might start to recognize the more subtle version in their lives. And then we all can kind of get better. Um, so it's kind of a, a, you know, a movement to kind of just uh, get to the information uh, that is so important, I think, and just make it more accessible and, and make it fun and not too heavy. And, uh, but certainly kind of get to the brass tacks of um, that. Yes, these things happen, but also if you choose to deal with it, it can become a source of empowerment because when you overcome something, like when you get yourself in a situation, you never think you're ever going to get yourself in, but find a way out. That's, you know, that's really the survivor mentality. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like if you survive something, then isn't it kind of your duty to talk about it? What was the point of you going through it just to keep it to yourself? Yes. I think because I certainly know when I've been down in the dumps and I've maybe heard someone on the radio or, or a movie where someone tells this incredible story of what they endured. And I'm like, God, I didn't go through anything remotely as bad as that. Like it's an inspiration to hear what people can get themselves through yeah. and how they can come out the other side and have these incredible spoils of, of victory of experience and wisdom that come through the school of hard knocks. That's what I tell people all the time is because there's like, hey, how much money do you give away? And I was like millions. And they're like, how do you feel about that? I'm like, well, I look at it as going to the school of hard knocks. I took some very expensive courses that I don't necessarily you know, recommend you to take, but it taught me everything that I'm very grateful to have. And I wouldn't change a thing, you know, because I'm grateful where I've landed. Oh, I love that. And I, I am right there with you. I have been educated. I have been inspired. You guys, please check out this podcast called What the Flock. And I leave you guys with this question. My biggest aha moment, where do you see yourself either past or present engaging in cultic relationships, right? That, that is so interesting and brings it down to sort of that that everyday level that we don't have to be in orange robes, you know, chanting this and that, but where are we engaging in our regular everyday lives in cultic relationships? That is food for thought. You guys, great to be back January, 2022 on Bar Fights. Thank you so much, Hoyt Richards. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. For listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives. 